good to see everybody that's here this morning. Beautiful Lord's Day that we can come together. Psalms 139 is what we want to take a look at this morning if you want to be uh, turning there. The title of our lesson is Know the God Who Knows You. And that's from, uh, will be based on Psalms 139. And as we uh, get ready to jump into this, I just want to point out Sometimes whenever we talk about Psalm 139, we talk about God's perfect knowledge of man. And it's kind of left there, but I want to suggest to you that it's more than just God's perfect knowledge of man. It is that. But it's also God inviting us to come to know Him. And so that's what I want us to recognize this morning as we take a look at this. There's four points. God knows you. God pursues you. God, the architect of your soul, and God has a plan for you. And so I want you to think about that. And God does know you, and He pursues you, and He's the architect of your soul. But He has a plan for you also. So keep those things in mind as we uh, go down through this this morning. Psalms 139 is an amazing psalm. And there have been some that have said to know Psalm 139 is to love Psalm 139. And I would agree with that. Uh, God's perfect knowledge of man, but God inviting us to come to know Him as we take a look at this this morning in any relationship. In any relationship. The better you get to know someone else the more that that relationship can grow. And what this psalm points out is, God knows you. <laughs> and He's inviting you to come to, know, come to know Him. I'll read verses 1 through 4 in just a moment. But first of all, I just want to point out verse 6. Psalm 139 and verse 6. The psalmist says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's sort of a summary statement there of those first six verses. And what the psalmist is saying is when I stop and think about the way God knows me, the way He completely, thoroughly knows me, that He wants to know me, that's just amazing. That's just kind of a mind blower that God knows me that well. And He struggles to kind of wrap his mind around this. Now I want to say this also as we get into this lesson. You may hear me say the word you a lot this morning. And there's a reason for that. Is because I want you to know, <laughs> I want you to know, my wife tells me, don't point your finger. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know that God wants you to know what's contained in this psalm. And this psalm is very personal. To use modern day vernacular, this psalm wants to get in your face. <laughs> and not in a negative way, in a positive way. And the reason for that is this. is because God knows what this truth can do for you. God wants you to know what this truth can do to you. And God wants you to know the way in which this truth can change your perspective about life, about God, and about yourself. 
So I want to ask you something before we get really into this. In the morning time, when you kind of stumble out of bed and you stumble into the bathroom, and maybe you do, like a lot of folks do, you grab that toothbrush and you spread that paste on there and you stuff it in your mouth and you say, and then you look up in the mirror. You're standing there. And you've still got that bad hair. You know what I mean? <laughs> Let me ask you. What do you see? And do you ever just kind of stop and look at that reflection and think about what do you see? Well, I want you to imagine this for just a moment. That as you're standing there, you're staring in that mirror, and you're kind of contemplating what you see as you see your reflection. I want you to think about God standing right over your shoulder. And the two of you together are looking at that reflection. And I want you to ask yourself again, what do you see? And what does he see? And do you think there's any chance that what you see is different from what he sees? And do you think there's any chance that he wants you to see what he sees? That's Psalms 139. God wants you to see. What he sees. Psalms 139 verses 1 through 4. O Lord you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and you know my rising up. You understand my thought from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all of my ways. For, for there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. First thing the psalmist does is he addresses God. O Lord, you. And so he's talking. He's talking to God. It is you who knows me. And what he's acknowledging is, I know... (laughs) That you know me. And God knowing everything. We sometimes give a biblical term to that. And we say that that is omniscience. That God is all knowing. And that's what David is saying. I know. That you know me. And you know all about me. And in those first four verses there, what you see is like different layers. Have you ever met someone and kind of first off, you just kind of maybe know their name. (laughs) And then you get to know just a little bit more about them, where they live, what they do. And then you come to understand personal things about them. And with each layer, something else is revealed. And the relationship has a chance to grow. And what David is saying is, God, I know that you know me. (laughs) You know me all together. 
And the knowledge that he talks about there is extensive, it's expansive, but it's also this. It's very personal. You searched me. You know me. You know my setting down. You know my rising up. You know my thoughts from afar. Now let me stop and clarify that for just a moment because we think, oh, well, he knows my thoughts from afar and that's kind of like somebody off in the distance. No, that's not what he means. What he means is this. You, O God, view my entire life. You have got this perspective. And you are looking down here. And you can see it all. The big picture. Of me. Of you. God sees it. He says, you know me. You understand me. You comprehend my path, my lying down, all my ways. You know my words that are on my tongue. Before I ever finish saying them, you know them. You ever know somebody so well that they say, oh, I can finish his or I can finish her sentences. They just know them so well. That's what God or David is saying about God. Before I even actually say it, he knows what I'm going to say. So God knows. He knows your thoughts. He knows your words. He knows your heart. He knows your fears. He knows your dreams. He knows your frustrations. He knows your pleasures. He knows what can push your buttons. He knows what makes you mad. He knows what makes you glad. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. There's a phrase we use when we know somebody extremely well or they know us extremely well. We say, oh, you get me, don't you? (laughs) He gets you. That's what David's saying. He gets me. He knows me. He knows you inside. He knows you outside. He knows what others have done to you. He knows what others have done for you. He knows what you've done to them. He knows what you've done for them. In fact, He knows you better than you know yourself. There may be times when you go to do something and you'll think, oh, my motive for doing this is this. And God's saying... You don't fool me. (laughs) I know why you're doing that. God knows you. And when you stop and think about that, sometimes that can be just a little bit intimidating. A little bit unnerving. Ooh. God knows me (laughs) that well. He knows my thoughts. He knows my motives. He knows my words. And it can be a little unnerving. But don't stop reading. Verse 5 and 6. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In verse 5, he says, You hedged me behind and you hedged me before. I believe, as Mark read this morning from the ESV, he said, You hemmed me behind. You hemmed me before. Essentially what David is talking about. At first, he says, you know me. That's omniscience. And now he says, you hedged me behind and you hedged me before. That's omnipresence. Wherever you've been, God's been there. Whether you thought he was there or not, he was there. And where you're going next, oh, he'll be there waiting on you when you get there. What you're doing today, he knows where you're going tomorrow and what you're going to do. He has hedged me before. He has hedged me behind. He'll be there. He's always there. How I made it through those rough times, He was there. How I will enjoy the good times in the future, He'll be there. In verse 5, latter part of verse 5, He says, You laid your hand on me. And what David is referencing there, and many suggest is, the Old Testament practice in a Hebrew family that a father would lay his hand on his children. And depending upon where they were in the order of birth and so forth, he would impart a blessing to them and he would tell them the place that they hold in the family. And he would tell them who they are and what their position is and what's expected out of them and how important they are to the family and the things that they do. And some suggest that's what David's making. You laid your hand on me. Those words... Speak to a person's life. This is who you are. This is the place you hold. This is the importance you have. Same way. God tells you who you are. (laughs) He has marked a place for you in life. And he shows you where your future ought to go. So the very first point is, God knows you. God knows everything about you. But God pursues you. Verse 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall upon me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light. 
are both alike to you. So David first contemplates this fact that God knows him so well and knows everything about him. And kind of initially, he thinks, maybe I ought to run. (laughs) Maybe I ought to hide. But then he stops and thinks, where am I going to run to? Where am I going to hide? If I go up, he's there. If I go down, he's there. If I go east, he's there. If I go west, he's there. If the darkness falls upon me, it doesn't make any difference. God knows me. He's watching over me. He's watching me. He sees me all the time, everywhere. There is no escape. You're there. But then, he starts to think about that. Verse 10. Even there, no matter where he goes, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Wait a minute. I was thinking about running. I was thinking about hiding. There's no place I can really escape. And then he thinks, wherever I go, your hand is there to lead me. Your hand is there to hold me. What's that mean? Well, wait a minute. Maybe that's not such a bad thing after all. Because no matter where I go, no matter where I run, no matter where I try to hide, no matter what I do, He's there. And if He's there, and if He's all-knowing, and if He's all-present, He can lead me. He can support me. Wait a minute, instead of this being a bad thing, maybe this is a good thing. Everywhere I go, your hand can lead me. Your hand can hold me. That's guidance. That's security. And David begins to think, why is he there? Why is he always following me? Why is he always watching me? Why does he pursue me? You know why? Because he cares about you. That's why he's there. That's why he's watching. And so David wants us to know. That's the perception that we ought to have. About God's knowledge of us. And of his always being there. His hand can lead me. His hand can hold me. Now when we stop and contemplate that. There's really kind of two options that we can give to that information. 
One is to be kind of negative. Oh, he's there. <laughs> he can lay his hand on me. He can get a hold of me. And we have a police officer in our midst this morning. Edwin, do you ever lay hands on somebody? <laughs> and sometimes when they lay hands on you, <laughs> they want to hold you. And maybe they want to feel you, but they want to hold you. And then they want to guide you over to the patrol car. <laughs> and we think that's kind of negative, you know. He wants to lay hands on me. He wants to hold me. He wants to control me. And we think this is not good. But there's another way to look at it. What if you're not really paying attention and you start to step off the curb and there's a bus coming and somebody reaches out, lays hands on you and then guides you back? Is that a good thing? Yeah. Winter time's coming. What if you're walking on the ice and you slip and start to fall and you could suffer a severe injury, but there's a hand there that takes hold of you and gently stands you back up and guides you to sure footing. Is that a good thing? That's what David's saying. Oh, wait a minute. He pursues me. He follows me. He's always there. He's watching over me. He wants to guide me. That kind of knowledge is not to be resisted, it's to be embraced. In verse 11 and 12, he uses language that suggests, what if darkness suddenly comes over me? What if something happens and I feel like I'm separated from God? What he's saying is, that don't happen. He always sees you. He's always there. Why is that so? Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Why is God always watching? Why is He always there? Why does He search you and know you? Because He wants to know what you're thinking, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, and He's going to be there. God was always there. And He'll always be there. Why? Because you're His. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. When I was conceived? <laughs> yeah. He was there. When I was formed, he was there. You're his. That's what he's telling you. The reason why I'm there 
It's because you're mine. There's an author that's fairly well known, Marianne Bird. She was born in 1928. So keep that time frame in mind. I'll help you to relate to what I'm going to tell you here. <laughs> she was born in 1928. She wrote her memoirs, memoirs, and she titled them The Whisper Test. <laughs> the Whisper Test. And in her memoirs, she writes that when she was born, she was born with a cleft palate. And so when she started school, first grade, they didn't have kindergarten and all that nonsense back in those days. (laughs) No preschool and all that. (laughs) She said right away, the kids let her know she looked different. (laughs) And she said, I did. My, My lip was deformed. My nose was bent and my teeth were crooked and I didn't always, you know, say the words just right and... She said kids could be cruel. (laughs) And even after just the first grade, just one year of experience going to school, she said, I got to the point where I thought nobody could ever love me except just my immediate family. (laughs) And she said their words really weighed heavy on me. And it really painted a picture in my mind of who I was, what I was. She said, but that all changed one day. In the second grade. She said back in those days, every year, students would be given a hearing test. She's born in 1928. Second grade, she's what, 1935? <laughs> right? So in 1935, they didn't have all the technology that we have today. So this was the way in which hearing tests were conducted. The teacher would be the one to conduct the hearing test. She would sit at her desk. She would tell all the students to be quiet. And back in 1935, they would be quiet. The teacher told them to be quiet. (laughs) Might have a little trouble with that today. But back then, they'd be quiet. And she'd have each student, one at a time, stand across the room from her. And they would turn from side to side. So if the teacher's sitting here, the student would stand there. And they would turn. So it'd be this ear. And then they'd turn the other way. And it'd be this ear. And she would whisper something. And if the student could repeat it, they passed the hearing test. She said she dreaded that day. She said because one of the other things that the other kids hadn't quite figured out, that she was deaf in one ear. (laughs) And she thought, oh my, what if the teacher starts on that side? (laughs) And she whispers something, and I can't hear, and I can't repeat it, and then they're going to know something else about me, another way to pick on me. And she was just frantic. She said, but it finally came her turn. And she stood there against the wall and she nervously waited to see what the teacher would say. And oftentimes the teacher would say something like, the sky is blue. (laughs) Or you have new shoes. (laughs) She said that day, the teacher said, I wished you were my little girl. She said her image of herself and her entire life changed with that moment. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. 
you covered me in my mother's womb. New King James Version says formed. The NIV says created. But what the actual word means is that you purchased, that you collected, that you gathered. David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's got a heart of a poet. (laughs) He's got words of a poet. And so when he says, you formed me, you created me, the word that he uses is the kind of word that you would use if you're making reference to an artist. That he goes out and he gets his canvas and he gets his brushes and he gets his paint and he gathers all of his material so that he can create (laughs) This work of art. And that's the language that David uses there. God is pictured as that artesian. He gathered, he purchased what makes you the very being that you are. Verse 14, I will praise you. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. As David contemplates this, he marvels at God's care. His precision, his skill, and acknowledges him as his creator. God gathered you, he purchased you. You're his. And David says, You have searched me. You have known me. You have formed me. Before I was ever born, you were already gathering what would go into me. Verse 15 through 18. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more than the number of the sand of the sea, or of the sand, and when I awake, I'm still with you. When David speaks of being made in secret and woven together in the depths of the earth, you know what David's doing? 
He's using poetic language. And what he is describing is human conception and development in the womb. With foresight. towards all of his days. He sees his frame. That means his strength. That was not hidden from God. My being was yet unformed. It was developing. What you would become. And before anybody else could ever see it. Before the modern wonders of a sonogram, God already saw you. He saw what you'd be like. He knew your parts. He knew what you would become. He knows all your days. And the psalmist sees it as intricate and marvelous a work of art human life that's what it is conceived designed by our creator what David is saying is wow We ought to celebrate that. This is conception. This is development in the womb. It's life unfolding from the very moment it begins to its totality and fulfillment. That's a different view. From what we oftentimes hear today in our society with modern progressive thought and thinking that oftentimes looks at a fetus that is an embryo and they talk about it like it's nothing more than just blood and tissue. That view is based and it's degraded. Such a view like that will lead to further degradation in view of life itself. If you do not value life in the womb, it becomes difficult to value life outside the womb. And the value of life will be lessened. But don't be deceived by the rhetoric. Life is not a political issue. Life is a moral issue. Life is a spiritual issue. And there is no common ground between those two points of view. You know how you get to the place where you can easily take life 
when you get to the place where you lose sight of God. That's when you lose sight of the value of life. And that's precisely the direction the psalmist has been going. And he contemplates God knowing him, searching him, being there always with him, guiding him, holding him, creating him with a purpose and with a destiny for him. And where does that bring him? It brings him to the point where he aligns himself with the view of life that God has and with the purposes of life for him that God has. And then he asks God to search him. See, at first he begins the psalm and he says, you search me, you know me. And then he thinks about running. And then he stops and thinks, well, wait a minute, this is a good thing. And finally, by the time you get to the end of the psalm, you know what he does? Now he asks God, (laughs) search me and know me. Why? Because I want you to lead me in the way of life everlasting. I want my ways to become your ways. Nineteen through twenty-two. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Why does he say that? Because now he sees himself. Now he sees God. Now he sees life for what it is. And those who are opposed, those are now my enemies. I don't think like that no more. I don't want to be like that no more. So let me ask you the question again. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? And if you don't see God, you've been getting your reflection from the wrong place. God wants you to look in the mirror and He wants you to see Him as the architect of you and of your life and of your soul and that you were fearfully And wonderfully made in his image. And when you see him more clearly. You'll see yourself. More clearly. Verse 23 and 24. Search me O God and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me. In the way everlasting. Now I invite you Lord. (laughs) I want you to search me. I want you to see if there's any wicked way in me. And I want you to help me to purge that from my life. I want you to lead me. In the way everlasting. (coughs) 
So what's the message of this song? God made you. God loves you. God watches over you. God has a plan for you. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. And He wants you to know that you were made in His image. And mostly, that you are valued. You are valued. I want to close with this illustration. I believe David lays it out for us. Why God searches us. Why He follows us. Why He watches out for us. Why He lays His hand on us. Because He made us. We are His and we are highly valued. But in our society, a lot of times what's valued in our society is this. Money, is it not? In fact, sometimes we'll hear the phrase, oh, it's all about the Benjamins. Ever heard that? And a Benjamin is a $100 bill, right? So what if somebody stood before you this morning? I can't do this, but what if somebody did? And they held up a $100 bill and just offered it like to everybody. And he said, you want it? Here's a Benjamin. You want it? And generally, we'd probably say, sure. I can always use an extra 100 bucks. But what if they took that $100 bill and they crunched it? And then they held it up and they said, you want it? And you'd say, why not? It may look different, but it's got the same value. So what if they then took that crunched up bill and they spit on it? <laughs> and then they threw it down on the ground and they stomped on it. And then they picked it up and they said, you want it? And you thinking, still got the same value. Well, what if they went out here by the street and they threw it down in the gutter and it washed down the hill into the sewer? But they followed it. And they fished it out on the other end. And they washed it. They cleaned it. Then they said, you want it? And you'd say, well, through it all, it never lost its value. There may have been a time when it looked different. It was treated different. I didn't necessarily like where it went. <laughs> I see the psalmist thinks about those things when he thinks about his life. There may have been a time when he looked at himself and he thought, that looks kind of ugly. 
Maybe there was times when he felt like he'd been stepped on, stomped on, beat up, beat down, kicked around, dirty and unworthy. And he wanted to run. But then he saw his owner chasing him, pursuing him, laying his hand on him. And when he saw him, the value started to return. And his thinking changed. And ultimately, his life changed. Well, when did it all change? And why did it all change? When he came to know his own. When he came to know the God that knows him, his view of himself changed. That's the message of Psalms 139. God wants you to know he knows you, but he wants you to know him. And when you know him, you'll see yourself differently. I'm going to extend the invitation this morning to any and all that are here. If you've never rendered obedience under the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is through faith in Jesus as the Son of God and our Savior. It is through repenting of your sins. It is through confessing Him as Lord. It is through being buried with Him in baptism so that your sins might be washed away, that you can rise to be a new creature and walk with Him. He wants to lead you in that life everlasting. And as a child of God, if you've not been living faithfully, you haven't lost your value. You've just lost your way. And you need to come back to it. The one who searches you, the one who knows you, the one who pursues you, the one who wants to guide you. The invitation is yours while together we stand and while we sing.